Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober, right here on Green Earth Radio. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. We've got a great show for you today. Our guests are Diana Brand and Terry Kubar of Transition to Green. Plus, we continue with Fighting for Foie Gras Month in our desserts. But first, let's go to our appetizers and find out what happened this week in the world of real food. Network physicists and food scientists at the University of Notre Dame published an analysis of the Food Trade Network that shows how contaminants in the food are spreading quickly, as well as a link between food poisoning outbreaks and the centrality of countries on the network. The scientist's solution is that all food should be irradiated, pasteurized, and sterilized by the year 2030. The problem with this is by sterilizing everything, we'll also be losing healthy nutrients. A better solution is eat more real food. We need to eat less processed foods, foods that are processed as little as possible, as well as eating more whole foods. Next, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has proposed a new traceability program that would require every animal which is transported across state lines to be officially identified. The proposed system allows for some group identification, but will likely only apply to large, vertically integrated operations, while the small farms will have to get each of their other animals identified individually. This suggested plan by the USDA would mean added expenses for the small farms, which would then be projected onto the consumers with higher prices. This is another example of the USDA being in favor of big agriculture. This past week, the Senate voted down an amendment regarding a GMO labeling. The proposed bill would have required states to put labels on any food that had genetically modified ingredients. A major disappointment to hear that this bill didn't pass at least in California, we have the chance to vote for a proposition that would require GMO labeling in the states, and that will be on the ballot this November. Certainly more information to come in the months on this radio show. Also, the Harvard School of Public Health did a study which concluded that the more white rice a person eats, the higher risk of type 2 diabetes. They also found the association between white rice and diabetes was stronger with women than men. I strongly encourage people to instead consume brown rice. Brown rice is not only a good substitution for white rice, but also there are brown rice versions of traditional pastas. Brown rice can lower your risk of diabetes, and it has nutrients that white rice lacks, such as fiber and magnesium. And finally, Tropicana has about 20 lawsuits filed against them regarding their labeling of fresh-from-the-grove and great-tasting 100% orange juice as their drinks are heavily processed and involve adding chemicals for additional flavor. This type of deceptive labeling exists with many products, and consumers need to be aware of what these labels mean, as there are a number of misleading words seen on packages. And now for our main course, which today we're going to kind of go a little more organic, let's say, and I'm going to be talking about how I got into being the appropriate omnivore in the first place, and then I'm going to bring out my guests, and they'll talk about how they got into it. So basically my background, I think as I've explained before, loyal listeners will know. The book The Appropriate Omnivore's Dilemma – not The Appropriate Omnivore's The Omnivore's Dilemma. I guess you can see where I got the name for the show. The Omnivore's Dilemma was certainly a life-changing book because 
before reading that, I really just bought whatever food was cheapest. I didn't have much concern for what I was buying. It was just cheap or it tasted good. And reading The Omnivore's Dilemma, it I learned about two things. I learned about all of the GMOs that were going on in food and to avoid those and about the the pesticides that foods were being sprayed with and the toxic fertilizers and learned to certainly be more specific, particular about what I choose about finding foods that were organic and not sprayed with any chemicals. That was the first part of it. And then the other thing was, I mean, I've always been a meat eater. That's just kind of who I've been. But it wasn't like I was unaware of, of the problems that meat uh, I'd heard had caused for the environment. And learning about the grass-fed beef was certainly a great thing to know that it, it didn't apply to all meat and that there could be I could choose meat responsibly or appropriately have you and get ones where the cows were totally pastured as well and which made for better meat and also made for better vegetables knowing that their fertilizer was used on the plants instead of these fertilizers made from toxic chemicals and fossil fuels. So for a while I had done that, you know, eating very organically and I mean there was a thing of really uh, I want to find everything organic. And I was – soon after, I certainly learned that not everything organic is healthy because, I mean, they have organic desserts and snack food and that posed a little of a problem. So the second biggest influence after the omnivore's dilemma was discovering the Weston A. Price Foundation because here was a thing that not only talked about organics and grass-fed but they answered some of my questions about you know, what is the right way to make some of these, you know, comfort foods and snack foods that I had. And I learned like simply an organic potato chips is not necessarily better because the big problem with something like that is the oil that is fried. And so with the Weston A. Price, I learned about eating healthier oils such as instead of having canola and vegetable oils using things like coconut oil or in moderation things like avocado and olive oil and also learning about how Lard from grass-fed meats are actually better substitute than canola oil. In addition, with the Weston A. Price, I also learned about types of uh, of grains I should consume or grains you need to either be soaked, fermented, or sprouted. So you got me not to do the whole grain or whole wheat but to do the sprouted grain and to do the sourdough bread. And also I learned about the advantages of fermentation where – food that's fermented has healthy cultures living in it and that that's how food used to be, that vinegar was added as a, a, a byproduct of industrialization in order to give the foods healthy, to, to, to give the foods a longer shelf life. So that's pretty much my uh, my background in a nutshell. So now here to discuss with me their backgrounds and hear some uh, a couple different approaches is Terry and Diana. So um, which one of you wants to go first? All right, Diana. Yeah. Uh, I'm Diana Brandt. I founded the Transition to Green community in uh, 2008, and it was uh, incorporated as a nonprofit. We are still waiting for the 501c3. Uh, we basically were holding bi-monthly forums, and they are run like a party, and they're themed. So we have uh, usually two guest speakers. Um now we basically are going to be migrating around uh, Los Angeles and also in Orange County doing larger venues, holding them um, quarterly. And we've also got outside uh, 
activities that we do. And Aaron Zobar has stepped up to be a host to expose people to different dining experiences uh, throughout um, the L.A. area, which we're looking forward to. We're very excited about that. Me too. But uh, Transition to Green is not about um, people uh, taking on one particular diet. It's really about giving them exposure to um, making a lifestyle change in um, terms of just eating healthy, uh, looking for uh, and supporting restaurants and um, uh, health food markets that uh, support sustainability practices, um, recycling efforts, uh, offer the organic choices, um, and practice a lot of different uh, eco things. So um, that's what you're going to be doing is uh, bringing people into that. Right, which we'll be telling people a little uh, information about that later in the show. Yes. Certainly. Yeah, okay. All right, and then Terry, so now uh, tell us uh, your, your background <clears throat> as far as eating and transition to green. Sure. Um, I'm Terry Kubar, um, and uh, I've been a, a strong supporter of transition to green for the last few years, actually since 2009. Um, but my quest for... Um, healthier or my my lifestyle and quest for eating in a more healthful manner stems back from uh my uh about 10 years ago actually when I was just starting um my PhD at the University of Washington um and uh even though um I've always had a concern about the environment as my background is atmospheric science and climate science which is what I study at the the Jet Propulsion Lab um, I myself was not healthy about two, I, I was not healthy and I was morbidly, um, overweight and obese. And I realized at, at a relatively young age that, um, some lifestyle differences could, um, potentially have a big impact on making, um, myself a much healthier person. So I initially tried and I also realized that I wasn't as physically active or that my endurance was um, lacking compared to my peers. So I started becoming more physically active and also um, began um, transforming my diet from one that was full of sugar, full of hev- heavily processed foods, full of a lot of meat, full of a lot of um, dairy, and full of a lot of other things that were not healthy for my body and had caused the problem in the first place to one in which I explored the world of, of cooking from scratch um, as much as I could. And that, coupled with um, a more active lifestyle, allowed me to lose a lot of weight, and I also transformed my diet from one with all of those unhealthful foods to one in which I started cutting back on meat, cutting back on sugar, and a lot of other processed foods. Um, I... Uh, I eventually transformed into a vegetarian and then a vegan diet, um, but even though I, I wasn't, even though I limited the amounts of food I was eating in terms of what I had been eating before in terms of meat and dairy, I explored a new culinary um, world in which I discovered Indian food and Asian food and all these different spices and uh, combinations. Uh, so I, my my diet had be- started becoming a diet full of legumes and whole grains and new vegetables that I had never known about before and a wide variety of fruits and nuts and seeds. More recently, I've 
I, I had read the book, or I, I, I started reading the book Thrive, um, which is a nutrition guide um, written by um, an, a super Ironman athlete, a vegan Superman Ironman athlete who sort of, as Aaron was talking about, su- supports um, a largely unprocessed diet full of nutrient-rich foods which are plant-based, but it, it encompasses a lot of different um, healthful vegetables and sprouted sprouted grains, uh, legumes, um, cold-pressed, unfiltered, um, unprocessed, unheated oils, for instance, as Aaron mentioned, olive oil, um, avocado oil, um, walnut oil, um, hemp seed oil, um, even coconut oil in moderation. Um, and a lot of his foods are targeted in, in here to... Um, promote alkaline forming. Um, they're alkaline forming for the body, which reduces acidity and reduces a lot of um, ailments that a lot of people have because of a heavily processed diet with a lot of foods that are very nutrient poor rather than nutrient rich. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I want to say I'm glad to have both of you on here. And this is a show that I've been wanting to do for pretty much since I got it started. I mean, when I told Diana I was getting a show. She had asked for me to be my guest. And I'm glad that you did it too, Terry, because I really want to do a show of bringing people on that have a little different approach to a diet as me and kind of open the dialogue and show really how there's a lot of, there is a lot in common. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I eat meat, um, you're vegan, but we have very much a common bond, I think, with the, um, against the processed food, which I mean, because that's something that, that's something that affects any diet you're in. I mean, it's a thing that, and it certainly, I think, is a reason that, you know, part of the reason I think that meats have been vilified is a lot of these deli meats have sugar in them and have other processed things like carrageen. And it's kind of whatever diet you're on, you're going to be faced with these things of oils and sugars. And um, I think Diana has something she wants yeah, to add. Yeah, I, I just forgot to mention that um, my diet has changed over the years as well. I think all of us, our bodies are always changing, so... We're always having to adjust uh, to different things. Sometimes we develop sensitivities or allergies. Uh, in my case, I was in a really bad car accident in 98 and had to have C1, C2 spinal fusion, and it affected my, I have injury to my nervous system, so I have a slow peristaltic wave. You don't necessarily have to be in an accident to have that. Some people just are born with a slow peristaltic wave. But what's happened is that I don't, um, move the food down in a normal manner through, it doesn't pass through my stomach like most people's would. It sits. And so what's happened is I don't handle digesting dairy as well. Uh, I always thought I couldn't imagine my life without dairy, and yet um, I've basically had to kind of put that to a real minimum. Uh, Also, uh, meats. Um, I do love eating meat, but I can't really eat that much if I do, it's got to be very small portions because it, it doesn't really break down that well. It just sits. So, um, you know, taking into consideration the people, uh, the bodies do change over, I think they were saying something like every five to ten years that our um, cells are changing. And, um, Aaron, you mentioned something about that too, that we're, it's always regenerating. There's always opportunity to improve our bodies by taking in good things, making sure that they're organic. So, yeah, and I just now, to add that. right, and now Terry had mentioned about Thrive, um, and I certainly mentioned 
Omnivore's Dilemma mm-hmm. and also uh, Nourishing Traditions, the, uh, the Weston A. Price cookbook. Um, are there any books that you read that have influenced the way you eat? Um, well, I wanted to bring this book. It's called The uh, Microbe Fap- Factor by um, Hiromi uh, Shinya. He's an MD, and it's Urinate Immunity and the Coming Health Revolution. Uh, I had started it, and it's basically focused on uh, creating an alkaline-based diet, and I really wanted to educate myself more about that, um, reducing the types of foods that um, creates acid in your body. Uh, If you have too much of this stuff, and typically it's junk food um, and a lot of um, processed artificial stuff, it's um, really creating a bad environment for your body to maintain uh, a healthy system. And Terry's actually got quite a bit on that. Um, sure. Let's, let's hear what you have. In addition to that, uh, the, the book that I was mentioning before, Thrive, does talk about um, these alkaline-forming foods and how they promote um, a healthful pH balance in the body. Um, there's, there are a couple of different kinds of stress that um, the author mentions in here. Brendan Brazier, um, he, he, um, one of the biggest stressors that has a deleterious effect on the body um, is uh, um, nutritional stress. And that, that, as Diana mentioned, is largely based on uh, consumption of a lot of foods that are, are acid-forming. Um, and those include, um, those include a whole variety of, of, of refined foods it does include it does include meat and other foods as well, um, and it includes pas- heavily pasteurized foods and uh, um, candy and synthetic multivitamins and other um, other things such as margarine or um, soft drinks, especially soft drinks that are sweetened with um, high fructose corn syrup. Um, on a on a side note, in terms of soft drinks, I I have been drinking on and off soft. I've been drinking an alternative to traditional soft drinks that um, are sweetened with stevia, which doesn't have any of the artificial um, sweetener in it. It's a uh, it's it's been around for a long time. It's it's from a plant, and uh, I'm not a nutritionist myself, but I know that those diabetics out there that and who may like their soda may find some comfort in. Um, uh, some beverages that are sweetened with stevia, which is an alternative to all of the artificial um, sweeteners out there. Yeah, stevia is a great sugar substitute. There's actually there's a number of uh, sugar substitutes that I recommend. Certainly stevia is one, and you also have the um, – it's called the dehydrated uh, cane sugar. There's the two types are there's sucanat and there's also Rapunzel, which used to be known as Rapidura, and – there's a newer one that's similar to it called coconut sugar, and then other s- things. There's also um, raw honey. Speaking of uh, pasteurized, it's, pasteurization is a problem in a lot of foods, and certainly honey. If it's pasteurized, then that's not good for you. But to have raw honey and also maple syrup and molasses, those are all good. What was the specific oh. soft drink that you had? Oh, the, that it's it's actually called Zevia. Zevia, it, yes, a company I'm familiar out with that of, one of Seattle. I think I learned about it about four years right. ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly familiar with that. Yeah, that it's it's becoming a newer thing. Of um, these soft drinks now are using stevia instead of um, instead of the 
high fructose corn syrup or even the cane sugar because, sure. I mean, people, you know, yeah, I would certainly recommend cane sugar over high fructose corn syrup, but what people need to realize is cane sugar is still heavily refined. Sure. And, you know, every once in a while I'll have like a root beer with cane sugar. Um, I've mostly just cut out soft drinks. For me, I've become uh, – I love kombucha and that's kind of my uh, – my favorite beverage of choice. And I've also heard that you can do a thing of like combining a traditional soft drink with kombucha to make it a little better is, is mm. the thing. Hannah Crum, who's been on the show, she'll recommend that. I'd like to offer my support for those sweeteners that you just mentioned because I personally have done a lot of baking over the last five, actually six or seven years. Um, and um, I use a lot of those sweeteners and they're excellent. Nice. The, the, raw, the raw sugar, the, the raw brown sugar, for instance, or... I, I love maple syrup. It's great in pumpkin pie, vegan pumpkin pies that I make. It it has a wonderfully rich flavor. Um, I also use agave nectar. That's that's similar to honey, and it's also a slightly lower glycemic index. And um, I there are a few there are a few others as well. Um, the dehydrated cane juice, for instance, um, they're they're all excellent for for a lot of cakes and muffins that I like making. Absolutely, yeah. I'm actually I'm starting to. Uh when you start getting venturing that, do that with one with using natural sweeteners, and the other thing is also making them from sprouted grains. Mm. Um, and I think uh, the one I want to try with actually is because uh, I mean, there's there's a great company called To Your Health. It's a uh, an organic uh, sprouted company, um, which you can order their stuff online, or I guess in certain cities they don't have a store that sells in LA, which I'm. I'm waiting to get one that sells in LA. I know there's a store in Berkeley that sells it, which I think next time I'm up in San Francisco, I'm making a uh, a stop at this store called Three Stone Hearth, um, which actually it's owned by Jessica Prentice, who she's the one that came up with the term locavore, mm. okay. and she has the store. She's also a Weston A. Price member, okay. and yeah, to your health, uh, their sprouted flour is great. I just ordered some sprouted spell because I kind of I want they also I mean you can also get just sprouted whole grain. Flour, but I want. I'm kind of trying these alternative ones to flour because um, spelled is a good thing that people that are alert have wheat allergies can uh, can handle spelt. Uh, the only problem is it does still have gluten, so it doesn't handle the ones with gluten. Um, but the, for the that, the celiacs, right? There. But there is um, for gluten. I believe they can have buckwheat. So yes. I'm going to probably. I want you know try experimenting with a little of those instead of doing the wheat because I want to uh, to learn how to serve. I you know I certainly have a lot of friends that suffer from it, and the whole this whole wheat intolerance is uh, and gluten intolerance is an interesting thing. Um, I kind of have to wonder. Um, Diane and I are talking a little about people getting uh, developing like sensitivities things they eat too much of. So, um, Diane, you kind of want to share your yeah. I was on just going to say that. Um, there's a gluten-free market that it opened a few years ago in Burbank. Right. And it's on Magnolia. It's in the Magnolia Park area. It's next to uh, Porto's Bakery. And I, I don't know the exact name of it, but I can give you the info later. Right. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that on Magnolia. Yes, and there is also one opening, which it's it's going to be gluten-free and also all raw called Organics. That's Organics with an X at the end. Okay. And it's owned by Luis Kismorio, he's been on our show. He owns the Figaro Produce and Flower Man, and they're starting this company in the store in Eagle Rock called Organics, where all raw, all gluten free. So, I mean, it's pretty much like uh, just you know an entire store of produce is 
okay. is essentially what it is. But you know, since it's since it's all produce, none of it's processed. There's there's no worries about anything gluten being in any of it. Oh, that's great. I, I, like Aaron, have been using spelt flour for years. I actually had a few friends who had some wheat sensitivities, but even though spelt is not gluten-free, they were able to tolerate my, right. my spelt um, creations. Right, because spelt is a very old type of flour. Yes. It's been a long way before wheat, I mean, and so, because it's a thing that a lot of people don't understand really how long we have been consuming breads. I mean, there's the paleo movement and... I don't want to totally knock the paleo movement because I think it certainly gets some things right and there is a lot in common with the paleo movement and the West Knight Price real food movement. But that they say that that breads and grains are new foods is is not completely true. I mean we've been eating grains for I'd say probably 10,000 years. What's new about it is the white flour as well as the unfermented. So for me, I've been eating a lot of sourdough bread. Mm-hmm. I mean, because sourdough, even with white flour, it's fermented and you get a lot of the nutrients because there's a culture in it. And you have to be careful with sourdough because a lot of sourdough that's labeled that, that you'll see in like Ralph's, is not real sourdough. If it has yeast in there, it's not real sourdough. If you don't see something that says like starter culture or right. starter, then it's not real sourdough. I mean, the ingredients pretty much for sourdough bread, it should be a sourdough culture, wheat, water, and salt. That should be pretty much the four ingredients that you see in it. Um, and you can find great ones at the farmer's market. I I love Bezian's Bakery because he on the, uh, the stand at the Hollywood Farmer's Market uh, explains the whole history of bread and how we've been eating this uh, sourdough bread for like, you know, like the it says something about like the Roman Empire. It was oh. eaten there, and he pretty much uh, puts the whole mission. And plus, he puts the article about it by my good friend, uh, the blogger Cheese Slave. You'll see her article at his booth on the farmers market on Sundays. Oh, cool! Um, so, have you ever tried to make your own bread? I haven't yet, uh, but that is something on the list. I have a huge list of things I want to try and. Certainly, yeah, at some point I do want to try making the sourdough bread. That's what I'm a little intimidated about making something like that, but You get it that is. starter, though. You can keep reusing that. That is. That's, and that's the wonderful thing about cultured foods when you, is you reusing the starter culture. Same with kombucha. You make a new culture and you can keep using it, mm-hmm. and, and that's the great thing. Have you been making your own kombucha? I have. Okay. I've been doing a little of each. It's okay. um, sometimes buying, sometimes making my own um, with kind of the way my schedule's been for a little bit, haven't had time to make it. But I have made a couple of times, and I think I've actually started to, uh, to per- kind of perfect it and find the right ingredients. Yeah. Have you had kombucha? I've had it, but I've never tried making my own. I know it's uh, it's talked about widely in the raw and vegetarian and vegan community. It is, which, I mean, that's what I love about kombuchas, you know, here, because I think kind of uh, I think kind of a theme we have food here is kind of talking about Foods that can unite because there really is a lot of divide among sure. all these different food approaches, and there needs to no, not be because I think you know as uh, as different as some of these groups can be, there's a lot of image, there's a lot of uh, things that we have in common in, in all of our quests, and and certainly I think that's a thing with transition to green of that's what we're trying to do, and with these upcoming dining series, it's a thing of. Um, you know, just because I'm the appropriate omnivore and, and my stance is, is a, you know, I do a lot of support on on pastured meats and, and raw milk. Um, I don't want uh, 
to do restaurants where that's their only focus. Basically, I want a restaurant that Sally Fallon would eat in and Gary Francione would eat in. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's like, like the one we have coming up. I specifically chose this one called The Misfit because although certainly it does have its fame as having, you know, what was voted the best burger in Santa Monica and that it's known for uh, for serving the open space, grass-fed meats. Um, the other thing I just, I like about it is that the produce, a lot of it comes from the Santa Monica farmer's market. And they say on their menu about a number of the items, they're like, uh, they have a lot of these ones that their items where it says it's either vegetarian, vegan, or we'll make it that way. So <laughs> they're great with the substitutions on it. And I think all the restaurants that we're going to be doing in this dining series, I want all of them to be like that, where it's just kind of, it's something for everyone. I want to be all-inclusive that, as we've talked about in Transition yeah. to Green, we want to kind of include all groups. And it's the similar thing. I serve on the board for green drinks, and it's the same thing. I don't want to make it a Weston A. Price group. I don't want to make it a, a vegan group. I want it to incorporate, I want it to be a tent is the best right. way to put it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I just want to mention that, uh, again, Transition to Green community it's uh, not about any particular diet when it comes to eating, but rather about giving people the exposure to healthier ways to eat in their journey to transitioning to a more eco lifestyle. Uh, we all eat differently at different stages, periods in our lives because our bodies do change. And uh, we were talking about the different kinds of places that you would like to take the Transition to Green community for uh, dining out. Uh, you mentioned Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, you, you, you said that Border Grill was one of your favorite The Border places. Grill, right. That's probably the best example I can think of. They have a huge commitment to sustainability, trying to use local and organic when possible. Mm-hmm. And then um, this is also very broad, but, you know, Asian dining experiences, Mediterranean, um, vegetarian, vegan, raw, California cuisine. I mean, we hope to take people on a lot of different uh, food uh Ventures. Exactly. Yeah, the ones you mentioned. I mean, pretty much I want to find a restaurant for every style. I want to basically prove that every type of culture, every cuisine in that culture, there's a way to make it sustainable. So, I mean, it's it's an ongoing search. Um, and, I, you know, certainly I have some in mind and there's you know, still a lot of research to do because a, a lot of stuff I've reviewed on my blog has been, I mean, I had a, the whole focus on the grass-fed meats. And with doing this uh, this di- monthly dining series, they'll give me a chance to explore some other types too. And certainly, you know, certainly we're open for suggestions. Um, Terry, Diana, what are some of your favorite restaurants in the Los Angeles area? Well, I have a lot, but uh, most of the restaurants I've been going to lately, um, they tend to be Indian or um, Thai. And um, this one that Terry and I really like, but it I would say probably is California cuisine is Fiore. Is that F- Fiore? Yes. Yeah. Um, kind of uh, California, maybe a little bit of Mediterranean as well, perhaps. Yeah. What I want to mention before I even talk a little bit about Fiore is that um, Alice Waters, uh, who really was a person that started getting restaurants to consider having um, the um, I guess the garden right off the kitchen, so to speak, so that they could put fresh produce right into their uh, work. Um, Fiore does that. Everything that they do there is made right on the premise, and they have their own uh, organic garden. 
they use a lot of their herbs. They even grow lettuce and tomatoes. Oh, wow. And they so for their a lot of their salads, they're actually using what they're growing there. I think they make all of their breads in house. Um, everything is made from scratch. It's a quaint little place as well, and they they offer a little bit for every diet. They do serve meat there, but they also offer vegetarian and vegan options and. They're all quite that's, quite nice. That's the kind of places I like. And Alice Waters, I mean, very important f- person in in many different food movements. I mean, certainly in the sustainable, her slow cooking is, I think, seen in kind of just about every type of sustainable cookbook. There's kind of her influence. And another thing, also an interesting thing is, I mean, she's pretty much the grandmother of like this California cuisine, this fusion cuisine, mm-hmm. because um, when Wolfgang Puck opened Spago, it was pretty much based off of her restaurant Chez Panis in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And also, um, yeah, I mean, she was the one really that like the uh, the California Pizza Kitchen, those gourmet pizzas. I think she was pretty much the first. She had served some of those at Chez Panis, and that's those pretty much um, the origin of like the gourmet pizza in California can be traced to her and also the guy Ed Ladau, who was uh, Wolfgang Puck had hired for Spago after uh, – after he wanted to kind of basically make this sort of, you know, San Francisco-style restaurant in L.A., he hired Ed Liddell, who had worked at a number of restaurants in Chicago, in, uh, in San Francisco making his gourmet-style pizza. So, yeah, Alice Waters, very, very important person in the sustainable food movement. I mean, probably one of one of the first I can think of, um, you know, before, before like Weston A. Price, before Michael Pollan, there was Alice Waters with Chez Panis. Yeah, I wonder if she did travel a lot to Europe because the Europeans have always had the uh, organic gardens close to their kitchens, whether it be at home or their restaurants. Um, I I was always curious about that or if that's just something that she came up with to start here. Well, it's amazing when you look at these European countries and see their diet compared to ours and how differently. I remember a couple of years ago in Time Magazine, they did this article of just like photos of different parts of the world and they compared, like, you know, America with all these packaged processed foods to mm-hmm. something like Italy, which even though they do eat a lot of grains and white flour, even that, though, is a little better because it's it's all freshly baked. They don't have all these, you know, th- stores, uh, breads that are, you know, sitting in plastic bags on weeks on shelves in the store. They, they freshly make it. Yeah, they were saying that, uh, well... When I was traveling through Europe, a lot of Europeans said that the things that they were reading about our uh, commercial farming, that it was rather scary because of all the um, experimentation that they're doing with the um, GMOs, uh, you know, genetically modified um, food. And they're also talking about now creating, um, I guess, some foods where they're growing the pesticide inside the food. So uh, it's rather... um, in some ways, I think scary. It is scary. We, we don't know what the long-term results are right. going to well, be. Well, it was like the um, what I talked about earlier about the science that's saying every food is, you know, by 2030 is going to need to be, like, irradiated and pasteurized. It's like, yeah. really, that's the solution? I mean, and is it going to be really that good? It's it just, to me, that's such an easy way out. I mean, we don't need to go there. If we go towards local and you know, making food from scratch you know i mean you know when i say i I don't think we can totally eliminate processed foods i mean and there is always some need for that especially when there's some like power outage or something or for backup but we can minimally 
we can certainly limit the amount of processed foods and even the processed foods that we have we can make foods that aren't as processed yet you know there may be still some some factories involved with it mm-hmm. i agree it's, go ahead oh um, I'm sorry for the pause. Uh, no problem. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, Terry, how about you? Any restaurants that you like? Um, there's a there's a huge, probably a huge list. They probably tend to be more Indian or I, I like a lot of Indian. Indian is food. great, and I mean, there's another culture because I like it. I mean, if they're, I mean, they have the naan, but they they are one where it's more their culture is a lot more legumes and protein and i th- i think there's a lot to learn from their culture that that works very well for my for my diet um in general anyway because of the good sources of protein from all the legumes and then then the whole grains and the vegetables um they're very nutrient rich and all the spices tend to be i think very very positive for one's digestion as well. Right, and certainly um, there's a lot of, I mean, with different spices, there's a lot of nutrients that get in that. Sure, I mean, sure. spices are certainly, um, if, as long as there's not like any kind of like nitrates in the spices. Right. I see spices as a very healthy food. And Whether or not it be a combination of different curries or, or garlic or, um, uh, pep- well, paprika, I guess, somewhat, um, but a whole entourage of, of different of different spices that some of them I think have medically been shown to have positive effects on one's blood pressure or blood sugar levels as well. So um, in terms of specific restaurants, uh, um, I, I live in South Pasadena, so I, I tend to visit a lot of the places in the Pasadena area. Um, uh, one of a fav- one favorite vegan place, but a lot of non-vegans go there as well, is a place called Green Earth in Old Town. And uh, they have a lot of Vietnamese selections, but then they also get into some sandwiches and other dish- and pasta dishes as well. They have a lot. They have a number of gluten-free options, which is kind of nice. I believe they have a brown rice. They have some brown rice pasta options. Um, they also um, they not everything is organic there, but they do have a lot of organic selections, and I think they're trying to expand that more. Um, and uh, I think there's also a commitment to um, they're trying to be as sustainable as possible. Their they, their to-go containers, I believe, are primarily compostable. For instance, um, there's a little um, market and kitchen in South Pasadena called Grassroots Natural Market, <laughs> and uh, great store. And they have a lot of gluten-free options. They have a lot of um, organic options. Um, they have a lot of vegan options. And then in their kitchen, they, they serve something for everyone, though, and they make it on the spot. They make a lot of wonderful burritos and wraps with um, all of the fresh produce. It's, I believe it's all organic. Um, one can, it's very satiating. Um, and uh, they also have an or, a nice organic juice bar as well. But it's, it's very fresh. Um, it's fat. It, it's made quickly, but they, um, it's all fresh and it's prepared right in front of you there. I like that you brought up grassroots. That may be perhaps the closest thing that L.A. has to like a three-stone hearth. I mean, they have a wonderful selection. They also have, speaking of the natural sweeteners, I know they have, you can get like sucanat there. Yes, and yes. I like it also because they sell raw dairy there as well as they have kombucha there. They do. The, yes. And you can get um, a lot of the ones that are hard to find in other stores such as they carry both Kombucha Camp and The Boo, both of which have been on my show. And you can't find those a lot in the bigger grocery stores, but both of them in Grassroots are available, which I love. Yeah, and uh, similar to Grassroots in Burbank is Full of Life. Full of Life, yeah, which is – that is also another wonderful restaurant and also a great independent, uh, independently owned 
natural oh, food store. Exactly. They also have um, a couple of people that uh, will help you when it comes to finding good uh, vitamin selections or um, uh, holistic uh, type treatments that they uh, offer there. Really, yes. um, yeah, I've, I'm amazed at the selection they have of their you know, their natural supplements and natural health like health items. That section's huge, and yeah, when I've been there, I've seen there's like a number of people asking to help you if you need any help finding something. And they're extremely knowledgeable, so it's definitely a benefit to the community. Yeah, full of life. It's definitely. I think that's. Um, it's it's nice that in LA we have a lot of independently owned natural food stores and. I think Full of Life is one of the best. I mean, also, um, well, they don't have a restaurant there. Also, the uh, Figaro Produce in in Highland Park. And also, Erwan is another good oh, one. Oh, right. Yeah, I love Erwan. Up in Pasadena, just up the street from uh, um, Grassroots, is Granny's Pantry. And even though they don't have a lot of fresh items there, they, they're they an old-fashioned health food store that has been around since the 1970s. Oh, yeah, I've heard and of that one. Actually, lot, they have a lot of bulk items. I need to check items. that one out. And it's so great. What's great about the bulk items is that already is reducing your packaging there. It is. And so you can get you can stock up on your your grains there, your legumes. They have some they have a nice fully stocked little inventory there. And um, they have some they have some wonderful organic items as well and it's uh, it's just an old-fashioned delight. It is and certainly what the food is is packaged in is a, important is is as important as what the food is made out of. I mean that you're not, not it's best to not use food that's in plastic. Instead, use things that are in glass. Bring reusable sure. shopping bags and reusable bags to fill things from the bulk bin, so you don't take home any plastic and plus the uh, or any packaging. Plus, it didn't come out of any packaging, and it's also a thing to consider not just in. The grocery store, but also when you're eating out, as far as um, if they use if they bring out a packaging when they bring out your food, and if you do takeout, perhaps you're a little busy or eat on the go, and you want to take your food home with you to do it quicker. A lot of times they put it in packaging. Now, Diana, you had mentioned you have a reusable container. Yeah, uh, it's made in India, and uh, it's a tin, and it's stackable, and. Uh, that's something I'm hoping as the host uh, for the Transition to Green Dining experience is that you will encourage people to bring stuff like that with them along with their um, canvas bag. Absolutely. That's a good point that to bring something – if you're planning on taking something home, yeah. bring reusable. Because we we want to support these uh, cafes and restaurants that are uh, doing um, you know sustainable practices, but not all of them have transitioned their uh, – to go inventory to recyclables or reusable. So just uh, it's a good bet to bring something with you. It makes it a lot easier. And I think once you get into the habit of just having your containers with you, it becomes a part of your life. Oh, um, absolutely. It might take some thinking or reminding at first. But right. You're into and I'd like to see some restaurants. I think restaurants should start selling these containers there. Sure, sure. I mean, I think that people would buy them. Yeah, you, we can always make those suggestions as a consumer. Exactly. That's a good idea. Yeah, and that's actually that's a big thing. I, I'm big on consumer suggestions. Um, we're talking a lot about the natural uh, grocery stores. Um, but one thing I recommend actually to people is don't totally uh, stop shopping at these conventional grocery stores because a lot of them are making more of an effort to sell sustainable products and i say if you only buy those then you're 
making a message that you like that they're selling this thing and you'll buy that from them. The other thing that's great about it is because a lot of people still go there for the conventional foods. Mm -hmm. I think it's great to engage in dialogue with those people as well as as well as talk to the managers about starting to carry certain products. Mm-hmm. I think that would actually be a great – I think I should actually do a show sometime about that topic, uh, the whole thing about consumer advocacy, I think. You should maybe even bring in someone from one of those markets like uh, one of the Von der Ruff, uh, family members. They own Vons. Uh, and um, you can find out how you – know, supply and demand. If more people are demanding things like what you're buying in um, like Whole Foods or Full Life or Grassroots – uh, these larger markets are going to have to follow, and they are starting to change a lot of their inventory. They are. I think the one that's made the best effort has probably been the Von Safeway s- stores because they have a number of like in-house organic brands. They have one I think it's called O, and yes. I've seen a couple others they're making. Von's has been, I'd say, made the best effort, and actually uh, Ryan from the Bukambucha, uh, from his point of view as a food su- as a food supplier, he's uh, he's agreed that Von's has made the best effort because Ralph's, they're, they're all right. They have, I mean, I guess they have some of these now that are called Fresh Fair, um, but it, it seems to me it's kind of a small section. It's, it's certainly a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, Gelson's is one which is good, although Gelson's kind of, I mean, they're one that's a little different because they've already been kind of a specialty store where they're a little more expensive. And so. there's a lot of imports there, specialty. They kind of pride themselves on gourmet so it's not always local. Right. And that is um, a problem with a number of these natural foods is the transparency. That's why mm-hmm. That's why I like Whole Foods that they say where all their stuff is from. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important, knowing the country Absolutely. Of so I think we can make uh, better informed decisions. So, yeah. So we have, I think we have three things to, uh, to bring up, it, which is what's in the food, what is the food in as the packaging, and also where does the food come from. All these things are important. Um, I mean, I think there's other things, too. I think also it's, you know, looking up the practices of the company as far as, you know, just kind of uh, human rights. And the other thing I would add is also the sustainability of the operation itself. Like, do they recycle the water and do the delivery trucks run on, like, biofuels? Sure, sure. I had heard something, uh, and this is through um, Smart and Final, uh, it was actually last summer they had a lot of um, biodegradable picnic wear. But um, basically near the end they had pulled a lot of it. They said it was a loss that uh, because it was a little more expensive, most people were still going for the plastic and styrofoam, which was unfortunate. Uh, it's really worth paying that little extra because what it does is – and again, everybody's probably heard this, that your dollar is a vote. I mean, we're voting with our money. So the more of us that start voting for those kinds of products, uh, the price eventually will go down. And then, of course, more will be available to all of us. Absolutely. Now, I've heard some mixed things about the biodegradable silverware because I guess there have been some problems about it getting like recycled with non-biodegradable or something like that. I have heard that too, in which then it kind of partially defeats the purpose. Unless you have your own compost heap in your yeah, house, for instance. Which, I mean, I don't, I don't know all the answers. Because to me, it's st- I don't quite understand it. Because I thought, I mean, the thing with biodegradable silverware is it still does take some time to break down. But sure. it certainly takes less time. So I, I kind of know what the problem is there. Is that uh, some of it's um, 
it's biodegradable and it's mixed though it's got like a plastic polymer and so there's been uh-huh. a lot of debate about whether or not it's really good to biodegrade with uh, organic um, like a compost if you really want to have that in your garden so um, I'm not quite sure what the answer is to that it's hard to say I mean the best solution really is um, you know for like if you have a party too I mean it can be expensive if, depending on how big the party is but it's still worth that you can reuse. Um, like even some plastic, if there's a way that you can reuse the silverware, that could in some ways be your best choice. I, I like the bamboo uh, picnicware. And with Transition to Green, a lot of our seasonal picnics, I always bring that, and they can be reused, but they do biodegrade once they start to break down. And so it's very natural. You can put that right into your compost, no problem. That's good. Another thing with, with just like... Uh, like metal silverware is something to consider if if it's maybe a party where it's going to be a lot of people but not at the same time consider doing things like washing stations yes and i know people's response will be oh but that uses water but you know what um to make plastic silverware that uses water too don't think uh yeah these you know just a gd uh grants you uh this magical plastic silverware <laughs> also the thing about um when you get together and wash it's creating uh, that family feel. You've got community, and uh, it can be a lot of fun. You go pretty quickly. I think it just, I think people appreciate it more eating on reusable uh, um, plates or using reusable silverware as well. If everything, it has it has a more pleasant ambiance when it you does. actually yeah. are using glass. It feels a little more professional. Or ceramic, for instance. So. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It is. Um, I just wanted to sidestep just a little bit. Uh, we were talking about also doing like a co-op uh, gardening experience for people, and it's kind of um, inspired by Alice Waters. Absolutely, yeah. Have your own garden because that's a big thing with as as I've just purchased a house. That's one of the major reasons that I wanted to do it, which uh, I know makes some people's heads spin that that's actually something that I want to do because some of my friends that are homeowners gardening is not their favorite part. <laughs> it's true. And the thing is, if we make it so it's a project-based, and if we help Aaron out with his yard with a project, and we all can learn from it, it's some sort of sustainable effort that we do, then uh, we'll rotate around to the next person's house. So each volunteer will have the opportunity to have a whole crew in their backyard. Right. And so we'll have this kind of a system similar to like these co-ops and these time banks. It'll be Sort of a similar thing with that, but uh, but more tailored to gardening. Exactly. I think even, I know this is a little bit of a sidestep, but even folks that don't live in homes or houses per se, um, uh, community gardens exist. Yeah, there are a lot of good can, community gardens. And people can grow um, vegetables and, and, what, and herbs and other produce in, in those. And um, consistent with what Diana was mentioning earlier, even potted gardens do work. I had... I. I had a small space a few years ago where I only had a few pots, and I was still able to grow my tomatoes and a few, a few other leafy greens. And it wasn't much, but it was at least rather satisfying for the small space I had. Pot garden's good, yeah, especially if you have like an apartment with a balcony. You exactly. can go that. And for me, even where I have a lot of uh, yard, I mean, my goal is to fill up all that backyard with veg- vegetables, and then sure. uh, with what I can't put in there, put some pots on the little patio. And- <laughs> On yeah. my house. I, I've actually at different forums have had people 
uh, say, well, I can't really get into gardening because I live in a very small space. And my answer to them is, I'd love to come to your place and um, maybe even help you out with a meal. Because what I find out is when I'm in their kitchen, there's even room on their counter. You get a special light and you can grow some herbs. And uh, usually when I tell them these things, they're really pleased and uh, very surprised. It inspires them. So um, there's you know amazing things that you can do in a small space. There is, and there's also a thing of if you're living in an apartment, ask the manager or the owner if there's, you know, if they have some little garden outside. Ask if you could do a little gardening there yourself. And yeah, they'd stuff. appreciate that. I know sure. some people that do that. You do? <laughs> I do. Yeah. Uh, the native gardens. Uh, that's the other thing that we really want to get people on board with, and uh, doing uh, neighborhood walks to kind of. I guess tour around and see who's doing what. Even take pictures with your smartphone and see if you can uh, inspire other people to do that, get on board with you, either at your home or your business. It has many benefits, native gardens. Uh, first off, they use far less water than conventional gardens, especially in a um, relatively arid climate um, where we live here in Southern California. And furthermore, um, it enhances biodiversity. It attracts butterflies and other good insects that we really need um, in our urban and suburban um, environments. Yeah, well, that's the other plan is to have in my front of my house have a native garden. I'm actually starting to look into that. So I want to thank you both. We're going to have to go to mm-hmm. uh, to desserts in a second, but before we go, basically let people know where they can find the Transition to Green website uh, so they can get involved. Yes, it's uh, transitiontogreen.org. Very easy. And there's a website, we're on Facebook, we're on Meetup, uh, Twitter, and uh, the next uh, thing that we'll be doing is coming up with Aaron Zobar, the yeah. appropriate omnivore. He's going to be uh, hosting a dining experience at The Misfit, and that's on Saturday. You want to- Sure, yeah, it's going to be The Misfit. It's in Santa Monica, right by the beach, and yeah, next Saturday, so a week from today at 2, so hour after that you're listening to this show then you hop on over to santa monica of course we encourage carpooling as this is green earth radio and yeah and you can have a meal there and so they have a very diverse uh, menu items from you know the vegan options to the meat options and everything in between and so yeah that's going to be next week and so that, so that's certainly one uh, appropriate pick that I have to represent to uh, recommend in this week's desserts. And then the other two we have, um, continuing with Fighting for Foie Gras Month, uh, this week's Foie Gras pick comes from the West Hollywood restaurant Petrosian, which is offering a five-course menu, which includes the dishes such as Armagnac poached foie gras, summer berry gazpacho, asparagus salad with black summer truffles and foie gras ravioli, seared foie with cherries and brioche crisps, plat, prime flat iron steak with foie and Fresno chilies, and foie gras ice cream. At dinners there, they're $100 per person or 150 with wine pairings. And our last recommendation for this month is the, uh, the book uh, The Science of Skinny by our good friend Dee McCaffrey. She was on the show just a couple weeks ago, and that book is now on sale. You can get an autographed copy if you go to the website processedfreeamerica.org. And that's all one word, processedfreeamerica. 
That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. Find out more about my news stories, my guests, and events happening this week. Visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.blogspot.com. 